You're listening to Tatiana is Everyone, an Orphan Black podcast. I'm your host, Chris. And I'm Stephanie. And if you are new to the show, this is not a spoiler-free podcast. We're not planning on talking very heavily about potential spoilers this episode, but we may mention a few things that if you're really sensitive to spoilers, you may not want to hear. So if you have not seen the first season, just beware that there could be some spoilery stuff ahead. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about character archetypes. This episode was actually inspired by a Tumblr post by Outlaw Queened. We'll post a link on the show notes for this episode. And in this Tumblr post, they they show Paul with the Guardian, or Paul as the Guardian, Sarah as the Queen, Cosima as the Scientist, Felix as the Trustee, Helena as the Priestess, and Delphine as the Partner. So we're going to explain what all that means, first of all, and how we think it sort of applies to the character, and then we're going to give our ideas of other archetypes that we think are are relevant to those characters and a few others. So starting off, what is an archetype? I think Jung, Carl Jung, is very much credited with the genesis of this idea of archetypes, that there are these kind of generic figures that tend to reoccur, particularly in storytelling, but also sort of within ourselves. There are these these roles that people can play out in their daily lives. And so when we talk about archetypes, it's usually meaning a very typical example of a certain person or a certain idea. And it's actually quite difficult to find a listing of all of the archetypes out there because there are bunches. And the description over here can con- can kind of contradict the description over here. But we did find a pretty good, thorough listing of different archetypes over at miss.com, M-Y-S-S.com. And we will also link to that in the show notes for this episode over at TatianaIsEveryone.com. So let's start off with Paul as the Guardian. And it was sort of interesting in the various listings for the Guardian that the one I came across most often was the Threshold Guardian, which is described as sort of a part of the tests that the protagonist faces. And they they actually listed, I think, four or five different kinds of Guardians. And, you know, some of them are just sort of there to sort of test or hinder the protagonist. But there was one that I thought was really appropriate to Paul. Basically says a protagonist that's relying on their wits might try to, might try to convert the guardian to their cause. So one of the varieties of guardian is actually a secret helper. So basically the protagonist is successful in recruiting them. And I guess the guardian in essence becomes like a double agent kind of thing, starts working with the protagonist. Well, and in the description that you found, they also talked about the protagonist might try to evade or bribe this particular guardian as well. And I think that's applicable to how we see Paul and Sarah's relationship evolve, right? Because at first she's trying to dupe him and then it becomes he, they become partners down the line. So I think that that's very appropriate for Paul. Right. And it's also learn from was the other thing, learn from the guardian, which I thought was also appropriate. To this case, because of course, she's sort of trying to get information from Paul, both about Beth and about the Neolutionists. And then some some sources, they listed examples of guardians from movies and, and, and such. They listed like Obi-Wan Kenobi and Alfred Pennyworth, which is obviously very, very different from what we're, we're dealing with when it comes to Paul. Right. I think that particular 
source was actually citing, or, or their description, rather, of a guardian sort of read more like like mentors, generally like an older figure, like Obi-Wan Kenobi and Alfred Pennyworth. So, so yeah, not not like Paul. <laughs> and as far as Sarah's con- concerns, in, in the original Tumblr post, they compared Sarah to the queen archetype. And the description that Chris found of the queen, a lot of it didn't really apply to Sarah, but there was a certain section that really did. And the description, the way that they describe the queen archetype is it says it's associated with arrogance and a defensive posture that is symbolic of a need to protect one's personal and emotional power. And so they, queens often don't have like a very good support system and they're often very sort of solitary figures. And I think that that really does apply to Sarah, especially toward the beginning of the series. I think we see across the series maybe an evolution in that regard of her character. But I think it does really nail Sarah at the beginning of of season one. Right. I think it is interesting that the specific phrase trustworthy support system, you know, or in the context of, of this description, not having a trustworthy support system. It's sort of interesting to me because I think of the character's we know, I mean, having seen the entire first season, Sarah's really the one who has the, I'd say, more trustworthy support system in the sense that I think if anybody on the show is above suspicion, it's Felix, right? Right. Haven't we decided that? If if there, if anybody on the show is above suspicion, it's Felix. So, I mean, I think we are introduced to Felix that way, too, as Felix is the most trusted person. But I mean, I I guess what I'm trying very awkwardly to say here is that I I guess it depends on one's definition of support system, because does one person a support system make? Right. And that's my thing is that even though Sarah does have Felix, we see at the beginning of the series that she's cut him out a bit. Right. She's been she right. she left and, and they've kind of been out of out of touch. So she does have a support system, but she's still presented very much as a, as a very solitary figure. Right. Because it's like, well, if we're talking about at the beginning of the series, like, does Vic count as part of the support system? Because, yeah, he's definitely not trustworthy or supportive. <laughs> exactly. And at the beginning of the season, you know, Mrs. S is not really part of her support system either because of their hostile relationship. But I think she is right. part of the support system by the end of the season. Oh, absolutely. Though, you know, of course, we still have questions about Mrs. S. But <laughs> trustworthiness. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but their relationship does evolve. And I think she's definitely more part of Sarah's support system toward the end right. of the season. It's it's complicated. <laughs> And this description also says that queens are lonely figures surrounded by a court filled with potential traitors, rivals, and backstabbers. And, you know, that sounds more like Vic. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, and and I think that that's sort of a fair description of Sarah navigating just sort of her current challenges as well, right? Because Mm -hmm. this whole question of, well, and, and really all of the clones in a lot of ways, like who's a monitor, who's on my side, who isn't, what does... What does Leaky have in store for us? Are the, do the people who created us, who are controlling this experiment, do they have good intentions or ill? So I, I think that that's a, a good description of how how the world currently looks for for Sarah and a lot of the, and I would say most of the clones. There's also an interesting comment here that uh, I guess people who identify as queens 
tend to suggest that were it not for their aggressive personality characteristics, they would be vulnerable to others' control, which I think also really applies to Sarah. Right. Again, the tough exterior, just sort of as a defense mechanism, I guess, really. Another archetype that we read about that we thought might apply to Sarah, and I think you could extend it perhaps to Helena as well. I would, yeah. Is this this archetype of orphan child? Of course, the show Orphan Black, this this concept of orphan is is very important to the show. And it's a big it stretch ha- on our part to uh, assign this character. Right, I know. <laughs> but and and it has some sort of similar characteristics to how the queen is described, but basically this idea that because orphans do not have a family circle, they develop a sense of independence early on. And they really have to construct sort of an inner, an inner reality and an inner morality based on sort of their personal judgment and experience. And so I think that that is very applicable to Sarah and to Helena as well. Because mm-hmm. while Sarah might be the orphan black, it, it, Helena was, was similarly separated from sort of a traditional family. Yeah. And raised by, you know, probably not very nice people, it seems. Right. I do like that they've sort of got the two sides of the same coin aspect going on there. Right. Then we have Kasima as the scientist. And of course, what's sort of interesting is the, I I think the more common archetype is the mad scientist. Like it's always sort of been the mad scientist type. But this one source I was looking at actually was sort of talking about how the mad scientist has been replaced sort of with a, a more personable, logical, helpful, problem-solving type of type of character. Says they may be well-intentioned researchers who, against their will, have had their discoveries misused by other powerful interests, military, political, or industrial, and who struggle against this misappropriation. And I think that's sort of interesting because I, I think to some extent that could be what we're seeing a little bit start to happen, or, or maybe that's the way the story is starting to go maybe i don't know of course in regards to well the clone experiment or what the end of the the first season basically they're trying to or the dyad institute is trying to recruit kasima to their cause so i I think there's so herself. yeah this is what i'm trying to get at is that it's not that they're misappropriating her science or anything it's just that I don't know. I think they're sort of playing with this a little bit. This this idea that basically they're trying to recruit her to use her own smarts and her own, I guess, the, the fact that her own life is in danger, they're sort of using against her to help them solve the problem. Of with her? Their, yes. <laughs> I mean, they, they've got, because we know this is a problem that they have, and they know that Kasima has a vested interest in it. I don't know. I just, I find that sort of, it hurts my brain a little bit. <laughs> well, I think they definitely recognize that Kasima is very intelligent. And, it, but, but I feel like their attitude is kind of, well, we, that's our intelligence. We created that. So they're, they are recruiting her to, they're trying to like get the intelligence that they made back into the hive mind, so to speak, so that they can be working toward the problems that they wanted, working toward not. Um, and, and sort of maybe taking away her free will a little bit, but you know, not quite. Yeah, it makes your head hurt to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> I 
But I, yeah, I do think that, that is a, a good point that even though they may not necessarily be misappropriating Cosima, we definitely are seeing suggestions toward the end of the season that she's being seduced toward working with the Diet Institute, whose intentions we don't really know. So it, c- it could be that, that her talents would be misappropriated eventually. Right. Actually, this, I think it was on this, this source too, which I will also include in the show notes. There, there was a comment about, I, I guess there's a new genre called lab lit or something, frequently featuring young female scientists sort of solving mysteries or, or whatever through the use of science. And of course, you know, I'm reading this and with Cosima in mind anyway, but just sort of thinking how appropriate, because yeah, that sounds awfully familiar. And then as far as Felix being listed as the trustee, you had some difficulty finding information on this archetype, right, Chris? Yes, I did. So we may not be quite getting where the author of the Tumblr post is coming from, but we you did find a little bit of information that did sound like Felix, right? Right. The, the one little bit of the archetype of the trustee basically said that the trustee is committed to serving others and completing assigned tasks, that kind of thing, which I'd say is fair. And of course, reading this also sounds like in one of the previously mentioned websites, there is a a, a character type that sounds like this. That's um, yeah, the the right arm, I believe, is what that one's called. Also, the sidekick, sort of that uh, that type of archetype. Right, because actually, let's go ahead and jump down to Delphine, because Delphine is listed as the partner, but in reading some of the, the descriptions of the partner, it sounded a lot more like Felix to me than than Delphine. Yes, because I think this is sort of it, it, this is sort of a sidekick type of of archetype where a sidekick is very loyal and provides emotional support rather than sexual support. And that's very much Felix's role with particularly Sarah, but we see with Allison as well. And and probably if, if Cosima sticks around to Cosima too. But I think you do make a good point that Delphine is sort of an interesting one to look at in regards to archetypes because we see her make sort of a journey from one archetype to another. Right. As I was looking through all these things, I, I noticed the femme fatale archetype, I, I think, when they introduce Delphine, that first episode she's in, the entire time they're talking about, you know, how they might be under monitoring by other people. So it's already in your head. Delphine suddenly shows up and, and she catches Kasima's eye. And the whole time you're thinking, okay, she's probably going to be one of these monitors, right? And then at the end of the episode, she is in her fancy dress with her makeup and her hair done. And she walks and then she meets up with Leaky. And to me, I mean, that's a very sort of typical femme fatale, that whole sequence. So you kind of don't know which way it's going to go. Although it certainly looks like it's going to be, you know, a femme fatale type thing where there is inevitable betrayal. <laughs> but then, of course, and, and what's interesting, too, in reading the description of the the partner, the companion type thing, says betrayal is a common example of the shadow side of the companion, which of course is basically, you know, that's what happens. And and we should say when, when we mean the shadow side, when it comes to archetypes, there's both the archetype itself 
And then what's called the shadow side of the of the archetype, which is kind of when there's like an absence of these qualities usually, or kind of like it sounds just the darker side to these particular archetypes. So yeah, for the for the companion, it says the shadow side is betrayal, which makes me think, okay, so maybe this isn't Felix, because like we said, the one person who we feel like is probably above suspicion of betrayal on the show is Felix. Right. But it is appropriate for Delphine. So Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, the the only thing that makes me think, eh, I don't know about Delphine is the whole partner being more of a platonic sidekick. And I and I don't think they're going to well, maybe maybe I'm wrong, but since there are sort of the romantic the romantic tension between Cosima and Delphine, it seems like she's not going to remain just a platonic companion. Right. But but I do think where they leave things off in episode ten of season one, I, I do think it sort of has come back from the shadow side to the regular sort of description of the, the companion or the partner. Right. Yeah, I agree. Since, since they're not there yet, <laughs> again, <laughs> it is sort of the, the support in that episode is more emotional. Yes. Since that is really what Kasima needs at the time. And all. yeah. For Helena, the Tumblr post compares her to the high priestess, I believe is the word that, is used yeah, on the it, it just says gift. the priestess, but the priestess. But there's some other archetypes that are kind of rolled into this same concept, like the virgin or the maiden. And this archetype, we found a description that described it as protectress of the secret wisdom that lifts human consciousness from the depths of materialism to the heights of illumination, which really gets at Helena, right, and sort of her her purpose in pursuing these clones and sort of her religious ideals. Is, is this idea of pursuing illumination and sort of shedding this more material world. Right. Yes, the, the use of the word protectress, like really, it's like, huh, I think that's, I'm just going to go with the word interesting. I think that's sort of well, interesting the, word choice there. Especially to think about Helena in that regard, right? Because we, we, we think of Helena as an aggressor. She's, she's a villain, at least in the beginning. So to, the the idea of her being a protecting a protector of something is is a little bit difficult to wrap your head around. But in regards to Helena's perspective, I think she she very much does think of herself as as a protector of something. Right. Well, I think it's one of those things as soon as we get to the scene where Sarah goes and finds her in Maggie Chen's apartment and and she's there under the light, yeah, arms outstretched. I mean, that's that's like the big reveal of her character, I think. That she's not, not strictly speaking, just some murderous psychopath. Right. I mean, she's that too, but. <laughs> I said just. <laughs> but yes, this, this ar- archetype very much has commitments that, that she has made to some sort of divine authority. And again, we very much see this in Helena's storyline play out. Indeed, we do. Another archetype that we found when we were doing research that we thought was appropriate for Helena was the wounded child archetype. And kind of like it sounds, the wounded child archetype is the memories of sort of abuse and and other traumas that you suffer during childhood. But the wounded child often will have a, a deep sense of like compassion and desire to help other wounded children. And so even though the, the children we see 
Helena interact with. I don't know that they're necessarily wounded, but we do see Helena have a really strong affinity for children. I think partially because she's childlike, but I also thought that was an interesting comparison. That's an interesting similarity described in this particular archetype. Right. And then it describes the shadow aspect of the wounded child may lead us to seek out parental figures in all difficult situations rather than relying on our own resourcefulness. I don't know that Helena completely relies on other parental figures, but I think we do see her have a, an unhealthy dependency on Tomas, right? Right. And of course, it's one of those, I, I don't know, I don't know, I'm hesitant to say that that's necessarily because of, like, the wounded child thing necessarily, because, I mean, well, I guess we don't know, though, because we've had this discussion during the Helena episode that we don't know when it is that Tomas came into Helena's life. Because I always kind of got the impression that he was essentially her adopted father of sorts. So I don't, I don't know. I'm probably thinking about this too much. <laughs> probably. Because, <laughs> because this, this is, I don't think that this is necessarily implying that Tomas was the one who was abusive toward her as a child. I think he's definitely abusive toward her, but I think it's more just saying that because of these, because of this archetype, because of these abuses suffered during childhood, it decreases the sense of in, of independence in in adults, and so they they turn to parental figures in difficult situations. And again, I don't know that this is necessarily a hundred percent true for Helena. She does seem to be resourceful. I mean, hell, she stitches herself up, right? Mm-hmm. But but I, I think we do see her have a bit of a an unhealthy dependence on Tomas, who is abusive toward her. Right. Again, I'm thinking about it too much and just thinking mostly that because uh, of the phrasing of in all difficult situations. And I'm just kind of like, well, isn't he the cause of most of her difficult situations? Well, situations? Yeah. Aside from the rebar in the side, but that's. Yeah. Can't forget the rebar. <laughs> as much as you may try. <laughs> and so then just to, to add a couple of, of archetypes that we uh, for characters that were not mentioned in the Tumblr post. In regards to Kira, there is this magical slash innocent child archetype, which sort of sees the potential for the potential of all things, the potential for beauty in all things, and tends to embody qualities of real, of wisdom and courage sort of beyond one's years in the face of really tough circumstances. And I think we definitely see this in Kira. Right. And, you know, speaking of, of the beauty and or seeing the beauty in all things and also speaking of Helena, I mean, that I think is really sort of the embodiment of that sentiment, right? Where Helena shows up at, at Mrs. S's house and takes Kira and, and Kira, you know, just trusts Helena. Because let's be honest, Helena showing up out of coming out of the shadows up Creepy. to the door. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> And and Kira's like not remotely bothered by it. Granted, she has her mom's face, but still, right? But still, but she know. But she has demonstrated before. She knows the difference between all the clones. She knows that's not her mother, clearly. And and then you know, also we see this this beautiful moment between Kira and Helena in the alleyway, where Kira just says, "What happened to you, Helena?" So even though she's been talking to Helena for minutes, she has this ability to see. Helena as an inherently sort of damaged person. And I think that's why she's not afraid of her. Right. Because she can see 
oh, she's just sort of this lost, damaged person. She's not really as evil as we, the audience, might perceive Helena as at times. And then, of course, does the most wonderful thing for Helena and gives that poor woman a hug. Yes. Oh, that breaks my heart every time. Me too. And then in regards to Leaky, Dr. Leaky, we thought the visionary archetype was very appropriate for him, right? Yes. It's sort of interesting. It's sort of a grouping of, you know, the visionary or dreamer or prophet or alchemist. And I think all those things sort of, sort of apply to Leaky because he's got the whole thing where he's like the, the, speaker sort of trying to sell everybody on this idea that he's got. And here, let me read off part of the thing. The visionary archetype lets you imagine possibilities that are beyond the scope of your individual life and that benefit all of society. And I think that's very descriptive of how he is as the leader of sort of the Neolution movement, right? He's, he's very inspirational, trying to get people to imagine how life could be better with this idea of self-directed evolution. Right. I think we talked about that a little bit in our episode about the Neolutionists and Proletheans, because, you know, he, he is part brilliant scientist, theoretical thinker kind of thing, and part cult leader. Right. <laughs> so, so yeah. And then it was interesting, the, the, we talked about the shadow side of the visionary. The shadow side of the visionary is, is a person whose vision can be kind of corrupted or either or, or bought for profit by by an outside force. And we have maybe a suggestion of this when, when Leakey says he's kind of the middleman in regards to this whole clone experiment. He's not really the leader of the whole thing. He could be lying. It's it's true. But I and I think there's sort of a, a mystery around Leakey as to whether he's he's sort of the just the visionary archetype or maybe this shadow side of the visionary. We're not entirely sure of his intentions quite yet. Right. Or if he's just the public face of this whole scientific thing. Right. Which, of course, this is what makes a good TV show, right? There are all these questions and, and you think you know what's going on, but maybe you don't. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why we talk about it. <laughs> so those were our thoughts about the archetypes that are possibly in there in regards to Orphan Black. Thank you again to, I think her name is Helen, over at outlawqueen.tumblr.com for the post that she made. It's really a beautiful gift set. I hope you go look at it. Again, we'll post a link to it uh, in the show notes for this episode. But let us know what you think about the archetypes. Have you noticed any others that you might include in this list? You can contact us in a variety of ways. You can leave a comment on the show notes for this episode over at tatianaiseveryone.com. This is episode 16. You can send us an email to feedback at tatianaiseveryone.com, or you can call and leave a message on our listener voicemail line at 972-514-7223. And this week, the animated gifts were played by Tatiana Maslany. Thank you for listening. <laughs>